RCR with Paul Brennan, Reality Check Radio. I want to welcome Patrick Phelps to the program here at Reality Check Radio, and he is from Minerals West Coast. And you might have heard him already on Reality Check Radio. He was on the Greenwashed show with uh, Jaspreet Bopari and Don Nicholson back in June. Well, he's back with us. Uh, we want to get his um, thoughts on the BlackRock deal announced, which is to set up a fund to help New Zealand become, well, carbon-free in its uh, energy use, decarbonize the energy system by, I think, 2050. A lot of people have uh, taken notice of that and have all sorts of opinions on that. Also, um, we can touch on the uh, significant natural area debate that's been going on involving Dockland, coal mining in general. He joins us from his office on the West Coast. Are you, Patrick, at the moment? Yeah, good morning, Paul. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good. Okay, so first up, let's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of things to talk about here. BlackRock, what was your, did you know that was coming? Did you have a sense that was coming? Oh, the, I think the only other time that I'd ever really heard of BlackRock, in all honesty, was when Jacinda Ardern um, met with Mr. Fink a year or two ago um, uh, when she was still Prime Minister on her trip to the United States. But no, that wasn't uh, something that I was aware was coming in in any way and it's a it's a difficult thing to comment on in any degree of depth because it's a it's a headline policy from the government two billion dollars sounds like a lot of of money and it is to you and and me but in terms of the context of decarbonizing the entire country's you know energy sector i don't know how far that will really go but capital coming into the country to invest in things is generally welcome if it means that things can happen that otherwise wouldn't but in terms of what it specifically will be spent on it's it's very hard to actually put my finger on anything at the moment other than some general statements that were made about um i think wind and solar and potentially some infrastructure this whole carbon net zero thing by 2050 is it la la land i don't think it's la la land but i do think there is a chasm between where we are as of 15th august 2023 and the 27 years that we have to um get there i mean for clarity's sake i am you know i'm i'm just shy of my 30th birthday and i i do see a pressing need globally to decarbonize our energy sectors and reduce our emissions of carbon so you buy into man-made carbon-induced climate change yeah i do i mean i i can't i'm fairly well convinced that that's the case um that you know the heating gases that have been going into the atmosphere since the industrial revolution in particular are warming up the planet and that we do need to get off that track. But the other, on the flip side of that, uh, it is almost hard for anyone when presented with the evidence to deny that the last couple of, couple of hundred years of the cheap and abundant energy that we have had from fossil fuels have substantially reduced misery among the population of humans living on the planet. I mean, you can pick virtually any metric, whether it's infant mortality, whether it is people living in democracy, whether it's literacy rates, um, you know, various human rights have all improved over the past couple of hundred years as, we, as we've sort of divorced ourselves from the physical drudgery that was reality for the majority of the planet's population prior to the Industrial Revolution. Now, having achieved this sort of prosperity and living standards, having, you know, improved, I guess, for a growing number of people around the planet um, and a larger human population at that, how do you then keep all of the trappings of industrialization while getting rid of fossil fuels and assuming that something's just going to come in and take 
the place of fossil fuels. I mean, particularly when we talk about wood and biofuels, the whole reason that humans started burning coal in greater quantities in the first place a few hundred years ago was because we were depleting the forest resources in places like the United Kingdom, and so therefore had to start you know, burning fossil fuels. So the idea that we will switch back to wood and those resources will be sufficient, there's something very counterintuitive there that I just can't seem to square up. So in terms of your initial question about La La Land, I don't think we have the technology available today to get to net zero by 2050. I think we could reduce our emissions, but I don't know that we can actually eliminate them. It's going to require some major technological breakthroughs from where I can see it anyway. So we'd have to be sure because it could um, result in a um, sliding back of living standards and uh, all those gains that you've just mentioned. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be, you know, uh, prickly about it, but I look out the window. I've got uh, double the lifespan on you. I'm from Wellington. Yeah. I'm looking out the window. It looks the same as it did when I was a kid. The winds are the same. The temperature's the same. The sea level's the same. So just saying, and and maybe from your window on the West Coast, anything different? Oh, well, I mean, I would say personally, I mean, you know, I take your point about your lifespan being double that of mine. So let's let's flip around and say mine's half the span of yours then. I mean, in my relatively short life, I've noticed changes and, you know, we don't get the frost that we used to. And I, I can remember this at different benchmarks of my life, you know, between the age of five and ten, I can very consistently remember frozen puddles and things like that in our driveway. And that that's just non-existent now. Further, I mean, I do live near a sea level. So further inland on my friends' um, farms or family's farms and things like that, you know, the, even when I was, say, 14 or thereabouts, so that's going back 15 years, there was thick ice on the troughs and we would smash them over each other's heads and things like that as schoolboys because that's just the sort of stuff you did whereas Absolutely. you might be lucky if you get a sliver of ice once or twice a winter now I'm told talking to my friend's father and so I've and even something like skiing you know I, I used to go skiing when I was at high school and things like that in primary school and the snowfall was more reliable and all of that sort of stuff so in terms of my observed changes that's that's what I can say that I can see at a personal level but the but this still doesn't get me away from, I have to say, I, I think it is hard for people to fathom just how reliable, I mean, you can almost take for granted the abundance of energy that we have around us and what that allows for in terms of mobility, transport, industry, all of those things, the availability of food. I mean, the conversation that we're having right now, I mean, if you stop to pause for a moment and think of the technology that is currently allowing the conversation that we are having it it is almost breathtaking that that has been achieved within a very short time i mean i have on the wall of my office i've got a picture of my father and my oh, sorry my grandfather and my great-grandfather my great-grandfather was born in the 19 i'm gonna say 1907 or maybe 1910 i mean his mother had seven children um she was a widow from the age of my great-grandfather being two and raised seven children without even she may have had indoor plumbing at a push, but she certainly, you know, would wash her clothes and the the laundry would get done in a copper once a week on a Sunday and that sort of stuff. You know, just all of that labour has been even even for people living in the poorer circumstances today in a developed country like New Zealand have things at their disposal like microwaves and washing machines and things like that. I mean, those that progress shouldn't be taken for granted from my point of view. Anyway, um, we're possibly getting a little bit off topic, but yeah, it's um, well, that's what that's the point about yeah. um, taking a hit. On yeah. standard of living, you know, it's yeah. uh, 
it's a it's a hard thing to face going backwards. People won't want to do that, <clears throat> and that's perhaps why you know the uh, in terms of energy consumption in New Zealand that at the moment transport's given a pass, right? Because that's yeah. that's where people would feel it first. Yeah, and and I think well that's certainly the most it's the most obvious one because most people would. Um, you know, put fuel in their car at least once a week. So at the very least, you have a concept that the tank gets filled, the tank gets empty. You have some relationship with the energy consumption there. Whereas I think very few people, unless they're like me and they have something wrong with them, would turn a light switch or a heat pump on and think for a moment of a hydro scheme and then transmission wires or a wind farm or know that at the time of night, say between 5 and 10 o'clock at night, that... um if it weren't for Huntley burning gas and coal and things like that, very likely the entire system would overload and there'd be power cuts all around the country and things like that. I mean, even the um, New Zealand had 100% renewable energy or electricity, I should say, back in 1945 at the end of um, the Second World War because the only electricity that we had available was hydroelectricity. And so they were rolling, I, perhaps some of your listeners may be old enough to remember this, they were rolling power cuts most days because you would have rationed and allocated periods where electricity wasn't available in some places. So the first coal plant that was built in New Zealand was Mere Mere in the, I think it's in the Waikato, and um, that was established to ensure that there was 24 hours a day, seven days a week, reliable supply of electricity, um, installed by Labour government, no less, interestingly enough, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, where Where is coal at the moment? I keep hearing that we import grubby coal from other countries and don't sort of utilise our quality coal. Do you want to give a bit more clarity on that? Yeah, and, and there is a bit of clarity to be had there, I think. So New Zealand, if you were to go back over, say, the last 30 years, New Zealand has consumed, on average, and I stress this is an average, uh, from 1990 through to today, New Zealand has both produced and consumed sort of between two and three million tonnes a year. I think maybe 3.2 million tonnes a year would be the um, average. But we don't use domestically all the coal that we produce because we export some of it and we don't um, produce all of the coal that we use domestically because we import some of it as well. So some people, and you know, in, in recent years, we've been exporting and importing a similar quantity of coal if you measure it on a tonnage basis. But part of the reason for that is that different coals have different qualities but the probably one of the easiest ways that i've had it broken down to me before is that there's effectively three markets if you ignore the sources there's three markets for coal in new zealand now there's the export market which goes out into the asia pacific and that's coal that's produced on the west coast very high quality coal um, bituminous coal or more colloquially re referred to as coking coal and that's used to produce steel and that's the carbon in the coal breaks the bond between oxygen and iron that's in iron oxide when iron's mined and it's or iron ore and it's raw product um and it's only a very high grade of coal that can be used for that purpose and within new zealand those types of coals petuminous coals coking coals are only found on the west coast so it's mined in and around westport and reefton railed over to um and the gray valley as well actually i should say um taken by rail over to the port of Littleton and then exported out into the Asia-Pacific countries. I think Australia, uh, South Korea, Japan, India are the four biggest markets, I think, for our coal. And that's a bit over a million tonnes a year. Um, and so that's the export market. The South Island domestic market, the demand is 
purely for energy, uh, and that's entirely supplied out of coal mines in the South Island, mainly in the food producing sector. So dairy factories, freezing works, hot houses that have to grow vegetables like tomatoes year round and maintain a constant temperature. And then to a lesser extent, but still quite important, space heating in public buildings like schools and hospitals and universities and things like that. So, And that's about a million tonnes a year. And then the North Island domestic market, which is supplied, was historically supplied purely from the, the North Island, mainly out of the Waikato. That was the most fertile coal field in the North Island. Um, and that comprises a, a small number of large customers. You've got New Zealand Steel, um, who actually produce coal with sub-bituminous coal. They're unique in the world, um, or almost unique in the world. Um, the power plant at Huntley the, and the cement works up at Golden Bay. And then other than that, you've got a few small factories and freezing works. Now, from about 2005 onwards, uh, the likes of Genesis Energy and others have found it cheaper to procure coal from Indonesia, who happen to be the world's largest coal exporter. They export about 450 million tonnes of coal per year. Now, to put that in context, the West Coast in its entire history since 1864 has produced just shy of 150 million tonnes. So exports every year triple the West Coast historic production. Um, So so how much of a better deal is it for Genesis, just mentioned there, to buy their coal in that way and have it imported, uh, albeit from a huge scale supplier, I get that. Yeah. Um, uh, what what would the differential be? You know, if they chose to consume or use New Zealand coal, how much more would they be paying? Yeah, well, just to clarify, they do use some New Zealand coal. So just to hedge their bets and have a bit of resilience, they do still get coal from Rotawaro and Matamadua, which are two coal fields and um, or two coal mines in the Waikato. But um, the in terms of the price, I imagine the Indonesian coal is cheaper and i i would assume that that's just because of the sheer scale i mean it, it's hard to anyone that I've, I've spent a couple of years living in china and the the scale of things over there and the efficiency that must come with that and then you've get once onto a boat one entry point into new zealand then taken by rail from the rail head to there and so um i mean if it were cheaper to buy coal within new zealand or within the waikato they would probably do it but the they do still buy some, so I, I don't know the specifics around the costing because I'm, you know, it's. But, but what would you say? I mean, how much cheaper would it be? Ten percent, twenty percent? Just ballpark. I'd, 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 I would honestly, I'd, I could give you any number, and I would only be guessing. But I, I can just, I have to imagine it's cheaper. Otherwise, they wouldn't be. Because the ship's more. burning bunker oil to get here. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's polluting the atmosphere terribly. It's one of the most polluting. Uh, fossil fuel. And, 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 yeah, and international emissions aren't priced either. So, um, because it's the sort of no man's land. They're, they're half owned by the government mm. and they're not supporting New Zealand business. Not no, a bit but, shabby, I would have to say. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, the, the, the clearest, if I were to, you know, fix the solution from a point of view of, say, self sufficiency or cost effectiveness or emissions and all of these other things, the, the most effective way of displacing Indonesian coal is actually, I would say, Taranaki gas. Um, and we've massively inhibited that through the oil and gas. Boy, do we, do we just really enjoy shooting ourselves in the foot? I have to assume so. Yeah. I mean, it, there's there's nothing logical or coherent within the situation. I'm just explaining the mechanisms of how everything no, I understand. Yep. work. Um, but on the flip side of that, though, 
to your point in terms of because I do there, there is this perception that there's a lot of coal right under our feet that we could be using if we weren't using the Indonesian stuff. It's not quite that simple, but I I, I do um I would say that there are definitely measures that are being taken within New Zealand that don't make any sense to inhibit domestic coal production. So recently, for example, there has been biodiversity legislation under the Resource Management Act uh, and also freshwater legislation that applies specific rules to coal extract. So you could be digging a hole in a wetland, for example, or a, or an area of um, you know valuable or you know ostensibly valuable. Um, native vegetation and if you were doing it to build a highway or to put a power pylon or you know an electricity pylon or something like that in there you could get permission for it um if you were doing it to extract rock for a quarry you could even get permission for it but for coal specifically you are not allowed to go you, you don't even have a process that you can go through and so the idea that you want to inhibit the country's fossil fuel supply by putting restrictive or prohibitive measures in place around our wetlands and our um, remaining areas of forest and things like that doesn't make any sense to me unless you are going to extend that to the ports of Auckland and the ports of Tauranga because ultimately not just coal but also um, oil whether it's imported as crude or refined the ports of this country are the largest source of fossil fuels so if you want to cut off the country's fossil fuel supply and you're serious about doing that cut off the imports because they are the largest source of emissions, not the domestic supply. So, and again, what would be in, what would be the impact of that? It would be a massive reduction in living standards for New Zealanders. So most of the measures that I would say this government's taken on climate change over the past six years have purely been related to optics so that they can say that they've done something when in actual fact, they've probably increased emissions and they've weakened this country's resilience. That, that's very interesting that you say that because that shows a willingness to, th to throw living standards and reality under mm. a bus for political and ego gain. Mm. That's yeah. crazy, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I mean... They don't deserve to be in power if they're doing that, surely. No, it's 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 crazy, but it's not surprising. I mean, most the, the one thing that most politicians never fail to do, for, for, for every other shortcoming, you know, and every other failure... The arithmetic around counting votes is something that they almost never fail to, you know, do. I mean, you look at this recent policy with GST on fruit and vegetables. You you can't even find an economist, not even a, a union affiliated economist, to endorse this policy, and yet they're doing it anyway because they know that it's popular with the majority of voters. It's, but is it? Well, who knows? They're, they're falling like an elevator, mate. Yeah. So, so I I think people are a bit more sensible than that. But to trade on the uh, well-being of current generation and future mm. generations just for that uh, it kind of sounds wrong um to me okay yeah. so from your knowledge in this sector if we're going to truly let, let's say we all believe that uh, man-made uh, climate change is a reality we're war warming up and it's due to the burning of fossil fuel that's still out for debate i, I think and many of our listeners but let's accept okay if that's the way surely there are some obvious options to address that first up our forefathers were were smart they built hydroelectric dams yeah okay and it was a little bit as you pointed out shaky at the start the supply wasn't quite there but we we moved up to that and i remember the big debate over the clyde dam well that's been an essential part of our yeah. electricity network so in the end it did have to go ahead and we could make more of those we know how to make dams yeah and there are other power options available which we don't seem to look at we 
kind of have a blind spot for. So if you were to map out, you know, a road to carbon zero in our energy supply, mm. total energy supply, uh, what is practical? What can we do that's practical and doable that would get us there? Yeah, so if I were to, I, I think one thing that often falls to the wayside as well is that I I think it pays to be aware of making the best the enemy of the good. You know, I, I don't think that we can necessarily get to zero carbon by 2050. Do I think we could reduce our emissions? Do I think we could have a higher rate of renewables? Yes. So if you wanted to unleash the potential of the country going in that direction, the sort of my prescription for what it would be worth would be to utilise hydroelectricity because there are still a lot of potential projects out there that are being overlooked. Even on the West Coast, we've got quite high mountains, a pretty short run to the sea. We've we've got more potential with things like run-of-river hydroelectricity that don't actually require um, dams. Not to say that there might not be cases for large dams like the Clyde as well, because I think, like you say, we need to acknowledge that we're quite lucky to have them. So looking again to utilise the potential of hydroelectricity, geothermal has a lot of potential as well, um, and that could definitely be liberated and freed up, particularly around the North Island. Um, there's, There's definitely a place for wind and solar but it's not the panacea that the government i don't think thinks it is and then yeah but it's gentle it's gentle you see they like gentle things and well and it's and it's also the other big thing with wind and solar compared to anything else they are incredibly intermittent so and the larger that say wind becomes as a share of the energy sector the more volatile the overall energy sector is um but then the other big one that no one really likes to talk about very much would be um nuclear energy and you know if you look at developed countries around the world that have lower rates of emissions overall but still have high energy security and high living standards um sweden and france for example spring to mind they have got an you know substantial proportion of their energy coming from um nuclear sources you know i mean in new zealand's total energy mix and this is not just the electricity mix new zealand's total energy mix, for example, we get about 56%, and this is for 2022 when we had quite a high um, volume of water going through the hydro dams, 56, close to 57% of our energy comes from fossil fuels and the balance, 43% or thereabouts, comes from renewables, predominantly um, hydro and then geothermal and then a bit of wind and other things as well. But that's, that's the guts of it. But the majority still comes from oil, gas and coal. You look at a country like Sweden, they have not quite half the fossil fuel use of New Zealand, but pretty low, 26%, but they get 20% of their energy from nuclear energy. You know, it's it's something that needs to be at least considered, I think. But yeah, and, and at the moment, there's no framework for even considering it. So yeah, and it's, from what I've seen in previous, you know, every now and again, this question comes up, this conversation gets asked. Across the political spectrum, left to right, there's a fairly consistent no on the um you know answer of nuclear energy so yeah why do you think that is I, i'm not sure i the 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 best that i could probably do on that front would be to say that there is an understandable aversion to nuclear weaponry and nuclear warfare um but yeah but they're not related no i know no and people people so often conflate the two but they are not to be conflated with one another i mean if you want to look at it for example the you know, the might be a bit of a cheap um, analogy, but nuclear uh, North Korea has nuclear weaponry, but no nuclear energy. South Korea has nuclear energy, but no nuclear weaponry. Right? Um, it depends on, um, yeah, it depends on the regime that you've got. But 
I the other sort of the other space that I think that that comes from is that the how to put it the I wouldn't say all of it, but there are factions within the ecological and conservation movement that are anti-establishment and anti-growth and think that we need to actually do need to reduce our living standards and all of that sort of stuff. And so nuclear energy, because it's conflated with nuclear powers, because it's conflated with the United States and with France and so on and so forth, um, there's a tendency, I think, to if you if you're anti-nuclear, you're sticking it to the man, I guess, is probably what people think. And so I, I think that's where it gets some of its currency from. I mean, I'm only speculating, but I, I do think that's where a part of that sentiment comes from. Um, another thing too is the um obviously the demand for energy drives the output of energy. Hmm. And we've had quite a an increase in our population, let's say in the last 20 years, really. Yeah. Um, but um, maybe even more in the last 10 years, decade. If we were serious about limiting energy consumption, we would have been mindful of that, right? Yeah, I guess it's how big you want to make the envelope. I mean, if, you know, short of all of the ramifications that come with, you know, the only country that's really had an attempt at population control or management and living memory has been China under Deng Xiaoping, and that had all sorts of issues come with it. Um, and then... New Zealand could take a more restrictive approach on immigration. Some countries do. Um, but we are, I think, in New Zealand just on replacement level, potentially, um, if not below it. And so there are many things that would just simply not be able to be done. And we've, we've seen the issues of closed borders and that sort of stuff in the last few years. So to your original question, um, I mean, if we were to limit immigration into New Zealand, people would only move to another country anyway. So globally, I don't think it would change things that much. But one thing that often comes up um, is that, oh, New Zealand's got, you know, other countries have had their emissions falling over the past 30 years. New Zealand's have been rising. But on a per capita basis, that's not true. And other countries, say, for example, Western European countries, North American countries, have switched from having a large proportion of coal within their energy mix to having and replacing that on the margins with renewables, but predominantly with gas. And gas produces the same amount of energy for half of the emissions. Um, and so by fuel switching from coal to gas and by having static population growth in other developed countries, yes, you could argue that New Zealand hasn't achieved the same reductions. We had lower base emissions 30 years ago anyway, and we've had population growth. So you take those two things into account and the overall growth in emissions or reduction or otherwise becomes fairly immaterial in my view. Right. Though yeah. we do have gas. We do have gas. Yeah, we do have gas. But we don't use it. Uh, we've certainly started restricting its use, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a contradiction in terms of we have these gas shortages um, and they may be due to, you know, planned maintenance or otherwise unforeseen circumstances. But for the first time in a very long time, New Zealand's gas reserves, that's not to say how much gas is in the ground, but how much gas we know we have at our disposal um, has reduced under the 10-year mark. And um, quick to defend the record, understandable, as anyone would like to do, um, Megan Woods, uh, particularly as the Energy Resources Minister for Labour, has been quick to say, oh, this shortage of gas hasn't been caused by the oil and gas ban. It's been caused by other things. 
But in the long run, the oil and gas ban will cause a shortage of gas. I mean, otherwise, what use would there be in an oil and gas ban if it weren't restricting the oil and gas supply? Yeah, that's the whole reason for yeah. it, isn't it? And also, yeah. you don't you don't know it's there unless you go out and find it. Exactly. And and there's definitely been, in terms of any incentive for anyone to come here, explore for it, you know, get more life out of existing resources, find new resources. It's it's buggered basically. So yeah. Okay. I understand. Okay. And um just in terms of the relationship industry uh and government. Mm. I mean, I'm just looking at uh the advancing New Zealand's energy transition presentation from the Ministry of Business, Innovation and Employment. Mm. And I guess they're writing it for dummies. But um, it, it kind of sounds patronising, so I want to get your view in just a moment on how they relate to you, the industry. Energy keeps Aotearoa New Zealand running. Well, I could have probably yeah. come up with that one. We use energy for transport, heating, manufacturing, food preparation. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew? And countless other ways. Yeah. Who knew? It's like it's like they assume everyone's a moron. Yeah, yeah, and I mean... Those I've dealt with a few of those discussion documents over the years, and they um that's a pretty similar tone to all the others that I've read. So, I mean, in some ways they're written in plain English, but in other ways they are, like you say, they do have this patronising sort of tone to them. But um, relationship with government, I mean, it's yeah, I certainly wouldn't give it a ten out. Of 10. How do they treat you? Is really what I'm thinking. Uh oh. Bearing in mind that the, the uh, bigger industry is supplying their cooking needs, their heating needs, yeah, their their chauffeur-driven transportation, etc. Yeah, yeah, it's um, oh, there's a hierarchy, I would say, but yeah, I mean, on the coal side of it, it's almost like coal's not even part of the energy mix. It's just this thing that they don't talk about. Um, but you know. Uh, an inconvenient one for I think this government is that when New Zealand was locked down through the level four lockdowns and things like that, there were supermarket workers, there were nurses and healthcare workers deemed as essential workers going to work. And also within that list of essential workers, you had coal miners because there was this admission that they could not help but make that you could not keep this country running without coal. Um, and the same went for oil and gas as well. And so you know, to have gone from being essential workers two or three years ago to just climate criminals or whatever they want to call us now, yeah. I mean, you know, but rich yeah, doesn't doesn't stack up. So yeah, and it's, I mean, even the other things that just don't get talked about that much. The, you know, there's there's a diesel generator underneath Parliament. Why? Because no one wants the lights to go out, and that you know, it's that cliche about keeping the lights on, but it's a cliche for a reason. You know back of it all and behind it all there needs to be a reliable supply of energy and it's i mean this comparative age of abundance that we live in it's easy to take it for granted but if you don't like energy security is life and death it, it's as simple as that if you don't have energy you die that there's food production there's heating there's transport there's everything i mean it's what would new zealand be like for a week without fuel you know no police cars, no ambulances. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't even bear thinking about it. It would start to unravel. Yeah, very, very quickly. And so I agree with the overall goal of getting to a a world where we have renewable energy, not simply because of climate change, but also because 
you know, you are dealing with exhaustible, depletable resources and things like that. So it does make sense. Sure, if you could somehow set it up in a way that your car can run on the water that spins the turbines and that sort of stuff converted into electricity, it's not quite so simple. But, you know, you can see the appeal of a system like that. That's fine. But to I, I just worry that we are staring down the barrel of an energy crisis in this country within the next five or 10 years. And the problem is that by the time that is happening and that people know that it's happening, um, it's very, very difficult to turn it around and do anything about it. Because if if all of the coal miners, for example, in New Zealand were just to decide it's not worth investing in this industry anymore, and then it turns out there is a need for coal, you can't just re-establish coal industry overnight. It, you know, it doesn't just doesn't happen that way. Same goes for an oil and gas industry. So, yeah, gradually replace it, but don't just eliminate it. You know, and that sort of that latter seems to be the approach that the current government's taking. So, do you think it's possible? I guess to to wind up, do you think it's possible to carry on successfully if a ban on new fossil fuel baseload electricity generation is implemented? Or will there have to be a modification? Can you see a modification or a change in that overall policy coming at some point, going on what you just said? Uh, I mean, it depends what they define as new, because I would say it's cheaper now to build renewable projects than it is to build new, particularly baseload fossil fuel. But Huntley, for example, is still incredibly valuable for the country's energy security and, and maintaining security of electricity supply. Now, if Huntley needs replaced with a like-for-like plant, is that going to be considered new baseload or is that replacement of existing baseload? Yeah, you know, good point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's 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 hard to say. But yeah, it's the current track that we're on does give me a lot of concern for the overall future energy security of the country. Um and it might not be obvious, but there it's not hard to foresee a gradual hollowing out of industry in this country where if people can't access economic fuel sources and things like that, and it, it might not even be that factories close, but they just not might make as much stuff. You know, dairy factories might just make cheaper products that they can export for further value to be added elsewhere rather than doing it here because it costs too much to use the energy here. So it's all of these things and it's, um, yeah, we're, we're not on the right track at the moment would be my final comment, I guess. Okay. Oh, and I didn't ask you about... Um significant natural areas the question there quickly has that been that concept been weaponized against the energy creators in uh, i your think area? it's definitely been weaponized might have too much intent behind it i think it's definitely been abused um because if you wanted to cut off fossil fuel supply have direct legislation that specifically addresses that i mean the the significant natural areas comes under law or policy under the Resource Management Act designed to protect remnants of native vegetation. So that should be all that it focuses on, not whether or not those areas are being disturbed for fossil fuel or for, um, you know, for coal, for rock or aggregate or to put a road through or anything else. It should purely be concerned with the impacts of the activity on the biodiversity, not anything to do with the actual activity that's taking place and just arbitrarily having different rules for, you know, coal extraction versus other mineral extraction or other earth moving works. So, yeah. Okay. Patrick Phelps, Minerals West Coast. Thanks for coming on and having that chat. It was really informing. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for your time. Cheers, Paul. RCR with Paul Brennan. Reality Check Radio.